0: This evening we want to continue where we left off. We uh, pick up this evening in Exodus chapter 17. We have been watching the children of Israel journeying now through the wilderness. God's taking them uh, miraculously. Uh, after now the departure from Exodus and through the miraculous opening of the doors of the Red Sea and on to the other side and now they began their journey through the wilderness and we've been watching as God's been working in their midst demonstrating his miraculous power as well as cultivating their character and developing them and we pick up now in the 17th chapter where it tells us that all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin and again sort of a reference to the area of sinai the idea is there when it says the wilderness of sin we know chapter 20 there at mount sinai is when they'll ultimately receive the law so they're in this area now it says according to the commandment of the lord and they camped in rephidim now take notice as the congregation sets out and is journeying through the wilderness Notice that their journey through the wilderness is being directed, it says, according to the commandment of the Lord. Now, we know specifically the way that God has been directing them has been through that pillar of cloud by day and that pillar of fire by night. So it is really a very simple process for them whenever the pillar of cloud began to depart from where it was in their midst and began to move. That was, of course, a representation of the presence of God, uh, that when God's presence began to move, they moved with the Lord. And whenever that pillar of cloud would settle in, whether it was for a day or five days or for five weeks, uh, they were to settle and to be still and to know that God was who he was and to sort of wait there uh, in the midst. So uh, the Lord by this way is sort of giving his command to direct them. And they now come, it says, to an area where they camp called Rephidim, which interestingly enough actually means resting places. It's uh, resting places in the spiritual. So that almost sounds a little exciting as to, hey, wh- where's the hey, where's the Lord leading us next? Or where's the next stop uh, in this uh, massive congregation of two million people kind of camping themselves around in the wilderness you talk about a an adventurous camping trip here well hey the next stop the next campsite is called resting places well that sounds pretty exciting oh i wonder what that's going to be like resting places (laughs) well sometimes things aren't always as they sound if you've noticed before because notice as they come to Rephidim it says that there was no water for the people to drink. Now, I'll tell you what that does. That makes a bunch of very unhappy campers. Uh, when you go somewhere and there is nothing to drink in the midst of a desert-like area in the Mideast, you have nothing but a bunch of very, very cranky campers in a very short period of time. And that's exactly what we'll see begins to take place. There's no water. Now, again, legitimate need. Uh, This is an absolutely legitimate need, but it begins to become a problem among them. There's no water to drink, and therefore, verse 2. It says the people contended, your translation may say quarreled. Uh, the indication there literally is they, they, they weren't just complaining this time. And we've seen them complain multiple times against Moses and, 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 and against the Lord directly and, and against kind of the way things were going circumstantially. But now this has moved beyond just complaining. There's actually bickering and contention and quarreling where no doubt maybe things are being said back and forth in, in response. So it says they actually begin to contend with Moses. And again, Moses being a a man with feet of clay like every other human being. They're saying, Moses, again? Didn't we already do this once before? And, and, And doesn't this sound familiar? All of a sudden there's no water again. We saw this happen just back in chapter 15. And now we see the same thing beginning to play out again. And isn't it interesting how quick we forget that whenever a problem arises that God will provide some kind of a solution And yet when a problem arises, and sometimes it's the same thing that's happened once before, how quick we are to forget the things that God has done before to resolve problems. And all of a sudden we start complaining and getting contentious and quarrelsome. And here they begin to contend with Moses and say, give us water that we may drink. As if somehow Moses was able to perform a miracle. It was God who really they should have been seeking for the solution to their problem but again the presence of god there through the representation of his leader there among them they go to moses and they say to him why do you he says why do you contend with me why do you tempt the lord again he brings them back to the sort of the basis of what was happening and it says the people thirsted there verse three for water And the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So we see this repeated pattern. Whenever things get just a little bit difficult, when there's a little bit of tension, the comfort zone is disrupted just a little bit and thrown out of kilter, It seems that the natural inclination of people is always to do what? To complain. Uh, and, and more than complain here, unfortunately, their complaints actually go to, in a sense, accusations and indictments against Moses, who's uh, leading the congregation by God's direction in the sense of they're basically questioning his judgment. They're, they're questioning why he would have led them to where he led them and, and, and beginning to, you know, not only complain, but this time actually contend with him and, and accuse him falsely of what his intentions are when those really weren't what his intentions. I mean, the last thing I'm sure Moses was thinking, yeah, you know, I've always actually, you know, aspired since I was a young Hebrew chap to take about 2 million people out of Egypt and to watch them all slowly, progressively die in the midst. And and if I could watch children die on top of adults, that's always what... I mean, when you think of the the accusations sometimes that people actually make when you think them through... It really is somewhat ludicrous the way in which at times we, just because of our frustrations or our misunderstandings, begin to falsely accuse and misinterpret what the agenda or the motivation is behind this or that. And here they say to Moses, Hey, what's up with this? Give us water. And how come you brought us out here just to kill us and our children and our livestock with this thirst? Now, again, it's a legitimate need. They're thirsty. They're struggling. I mean, it, it, there's a complete legitimacy to their need. There was a, a, an essential need that needed to be addressed. And verse 4, Moses does the wise thing. It says, So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Now, Moses' last statement at the end of verse 4 there it gives you and I a pretty good indication of how probably sharp that contention was becoming. He literally was beginning to feel threatened for his own welfare. He literally says, "Uh, Lord... Uh, this seems like it's going a little beyond complaining here. You know, I'm, the, I, I'm starting to notice there's you know a lot of rocks as there is there in the Middle Eastern area if you've ever seen that territory before. And he's saying uh, uh, they're not just heaping insults at me. Th- some of them are about ready to start heaping some stones at me. And he's actually becoming concerned for his own welfare. Maybe there were actual threats being made towards him that, hey, we should just stone this guy in the middle of the wilderness and bury him and pick somebody else. They'll probably do a better job to lead us around. And and I'm sure there are plenty of people that are opportunists that were ready to thrust themselves forward and say, oh, if I were leading, we'd be at an oasis right now. You know, we wouldn't be here struggling for water or whatever. And And Moses is literally feeling a sense of genuine concern and he's perplexed he does not know what to do and there's incredible wisdom demonstrated here in that moses rather than continue in the contention with them instead it says he just cries out to the lord and he basically says verse four god what shall i do you know what that's a really wise thing to do when there's complaining or contention in your family life, in your marriage, in your personal life, when you've got a problem and you don't know how to resolve it, you don't know how to handle a particular situation maybe that arises, it is a really you know, wise and sensible thing to just cry out to the Lord and to say, God, what shall I do? What shall I do here? I don't know what to do. You know, I'm so thankful that the Bible gives us promises like James chapter one, where it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives freely to all without finding fault. And it will be given to him. It tells us in Jeremiah 33 that the Lord says, call to me. And I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. And the wisest thing that we can do when we're at these crossroads is to truly cry out to the Lord, to detach maybe from the people we're interacting with, to pull back from a situation and to just cry out to the Lord, recognizing the need that we have for direction and say, God, what shall I do? And verse five, God is always faithful to answer because it says, and the Lord Said to Moses, God, what do I do? God's going to say, Okay, you're asking for direction. I'll give you direction. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, that is, some of the other surrounding leadership that was in existence at that time by Moses' side. Also, take in your hand the rod with which you struck the river. Remember, that was what's often called, what's been called the rod of God. That rod was a representation of the presence of God, the anointing of God, the authority of God being with Moses and his ministry and his calling to shepherd God's people as his representative. So he says, take that with you, Moses, as well as the, some of the leadership. Go forward, go ahead of the people. And he says, Behold, I will stand before you there, verse 6, on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So God tells Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that staff, I want you to take that rod, and he says, I want you to go, it says, to the rock Horeb, And he says, and I will, God says, I will stand before you there on the rock. Now, interesting, God equates that his presence would be there either upon that rock or in the midst of of where that rock was. And then he says, and Moses, what I want you to do is I want you then to strike that rock. And when you smite that rock and you strike that rock, He says it will then miraculously break forth and give water to satisfy the thirst that exists in the people's lives. So God would meet this need and it would happen as a rock was smitten and it would break forth and usher forth water that was necessary to quench the the physical thirst that was in their lives to satisfy them, which was a legitimate need now. We know from 1 Corinthians 10, and we pointed out this text last week to you in our study, that the Bible tells us that that spiritual rock, the Bible says, was Christ. And, and, and as we look at these things, no doubt God's word gives to us these pictures that we find here, lessons and examples, but also types and prefigurements of the person and the work and the ministry of the lord jesus christ and the bible actually says this rock which they will come to more than once and receive water from more than once the bible says actually it was a spiritual rock in the sense that it says that rock actually in the wilderness was christ it was a representation physically of what christ would ultimately do and become spiritually that jesus christ our rock of ages he himself like that rock was smitten and as a result of jesus being struck and smitten the water of god's spirit has ushered forth to satisfy and to quench the spiritual thirst that exists in all of our lives in the same way that there's a physical thirst there is a spiritual thirst that exists inside of every human being and that spiritual thirst is only satisfied and quenched through the ministry of God's spirit that comes forth through the person of Jesus Christ, having been smitten and struck for our sin, for our failures. To me, I find it interesting. Take notice even in the text there, verse six, that that God literally says that his presence would be there on the rock. So as Moses You know, smote the rock as he literally struck the rock. Again, was the, was there a visible manifestation of the presence of God? Was the presence of the pre incarnate Christ there in a sense where literally, I I wonder, again, speculation, but as Moses came down with the rock, did he actually come right through? the presence of the Lord or the person of Christ there in a, in a a pre-incarnate state being there in all of this, in this beautiful symbolic representation of what was taking place here. And we know this is exactly uh, what the Lord ultimately would do. In fact, it's interesting in, in John chapter 7, there at the Feast of Tabernacles, we have that account that's given to us where on the Feast of Tabernacles, what they would do there in Israel is they would, uh, during the days of the feast, they would take these golden pitchers and go down to the pool of Siloam, and they would come up to the temple area there, and then they would then pour out the water onto these huge pavement stones as they were commemorating and remembering God's preservation through the time of their wilderness journey. That's what Tabernacles was. It was a celebration of God's preserving his people throughout the wilderness years. And part of that was God then giving them water from the rock. So as they would dump the the water onto these large pavement stones, it was a reminder to them of how God brought water from the rock to satisfy their thirst in the wilderness. Now, it's interesting that on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, that eighth day, That same thing was done, but everything was done in complete silence, and it was done in a very symbolic way, and in a complete day of silence, it was on that last great day of the feast. John 7.37 tells us this, on that last great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out on that silent day. On that day when they had been remembering God providing water from the rock to quench their thirst. On that day of silence, the last day of that feast, Jesus stands up as they're about to do this. And Jesus, it says, cries out in the midst of the silence saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink he said, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John adds this commentary, but this Jesus spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So Jesus in this very symbolic way, pointing to himself as the ultimate fulfillment of these very things saying, listen, in the same way you have a physical thirst You have a spiritual thirst and he says and the only way that thirst can be satisfied is by coming to me by coming to Jesus himself and how wonderful that the waters of God's spirit are available to us to drink of to be refreshed to be satisfied by and you know what? this is why later on and not that I want to jump ahead of where we're at. But this is why later on when a similar circumstance arises again and the people are complaining when there's no water and then God tells Moses, Moses, I want you to go and he says, I want you to speak to the rock. And Moses, remember, it tells us in the book of Numbers, he goes to that rock and instead of following God's command, instead of speaking to the rock, he says, you rebels, how long must I deal with you and bring water out of rocks and, blah, blah, and I've had enough of you? And he takes the same rod and boom, he smacks down on the rock a second time and water gushes forth because, see, uh, God won't cut off his nose despite his pain. God won't, in a sense, hold back from blessing his people because he's got a servant acting foolish even in a spiritual place of leadership. God loves his sheep. He's still going to take care of the sheep. But you remember Moses was severely disciplined by the Lord for that. And he said, "Uh, Moses, can you come here a minute? Uh, No going into the promised land for you. Now that seems huge. I mean, what are you? I mean, here Moses does all these faithful things for the lord he leads them out of egypt he represents god well he takes the people for 40 years through the wilderness i mean his whole life dream was just to finally take them into the promised land and here he deals with these grumbling cranky campers and you know people giving him a hard time you think man everybody's entitled to just lose it once in a while i mean one little one little slip up and you're going to cut off the most precious and important thing in his life. But see, what God saw was the bigger picture is that when Moses struck that rock a second time, instead of just speaking to it the way that God told him to, he was distorting a beautiful picture and type of Christ. Because see, Jesus only needed to be struck once so that the waters of life of God's Spirit are freely available to whoever thirsts and comes and drinks. Jesus doesn't need to continue to suffer again and again and again and again. He was struck once. He suffered once. He made total perfect atonement for our sin. And now all anyone needs to do is in faith speak to Jesus Christ, the rock of ages, and they can receive freely the waters of life. And when Moses lost his temper in anger and struck that rock, as we'll see later on, he distorted something way bigger than, than what he even imagined. You know, just a really sobering, incredible reminder that a lot of times our decisions are way more far-reaching than what we often realize. You know, in that moment, Moses was just losing his temper, but because he had the responsibility level he did before God, God saw it on a way bigger level. And there was something that God was doing way beyond what Moses was aware of. And listen, you at times may be doing things and you're thinking it has to do with the present moment you're in. You have no idea how far-reaching God may be working through you to accomplish something in the midst of what you're doing. So uh, Moses here goes through this event and he brings forth, as God commands him to, water from this rock. Again, another miracle, Moses does this And brings forth the water. Verse 7 says, so they called the name of that place Masa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel. And because they tempted the Lord, saying, and this is what they were saying apparently, is the Lord among us or not? I'm glad that that's. A, a pretty tempting statement to say towards God. You know, the people were actually contending and complaining with Moses, saying, "You know, is, is God in our midst or not? Where's God at? Where's the presence of God at?" And they were actually questioning God's presence. In their midst, and the Lord was hearing the very things that they were saying. So the place was called contention, uh, or tempting. The idea is there because of what the people were doing. Well, verse eight. Uh, you would think after that event, uh, God would give them a little R and R, a little break, a little reprieve. You know, they just went through another difficult situation cranky campers no water available they're thirsty they're struggling you think all right let's you know they they need a little break but yet isn't this much like the christian life verse eight now amalek came and fought with israel right after that here comes now a battle all of a sudden you know one difficulty is followed up with an attack and an assault uh by enemy lines here coming against them it says amalek came and fought with israel in rephidim now This is now the first, in a sense, battle that Israel is forced to fight. Up to this point, God has fought all their battles for them. They weren't prepared or ready to fight any battles yet. They were a... Huge, in a sense, tribe of nothing other than just slaves and and work servants. They didn't know how to fight battles. And remember when we saw when God was first leading them out instead of leading them the shorter route through Philistine territory. Remember a few chapters ago, it says that God instead led them the long way around because God said, if you go the way of the Philistines, they're they're a very strategic, powerful military people. and, And if they attack you, you'll be intimidated and you're not ready to fight battles yet you're not able to handle that yet and god knew what they were able to handle so god kept them away from that because they weren't ready for any type of military conflict well god had been fighting all their battles for them up to this point but now god allows them to participate and to be engaged in the process here and we now see the first occasion where israel experiences some actual military conflict and it says that they are attacked They are aggressively attacked, it says, by a people called Amalek. Now, that name should be familiar. Amalek, if you remember back from Genesis chapter 36, is one of the descendants of Esau. You remember in our study in Genesis, we looked at Jacob and Esau. And Esau, remember, was the brother whose propensity was always inclined towards that which was carnal. Uh, He was a man who lived after his carnal nature, his carnal desires. He was the one who sold away his birthright, remember, for a pot of stew. And basically, he disregarded anything which was spiritual and moral, and all he cared about was immediate gratification, the satisfaction of his lusts and his desires. He was a man that lived according to his sinful inclinations a man that lived according to his passions and his desires and he was ruled by that he was a very carnal fleshly man now in light of that we will see in the bible that amalek becomes a type and a picture of our sin nature of our flesh and when we see amalek certainly historically But from a symbolic standpoint, the Amalekites and Amalek always becomes a type of the flesh in the Old Testament as we look at it. So here we find Amalek pictured as a type of the flesh coming against the people of God. And and that is always our battle. Our constant wrestling is that our old nature, our fleshly nature, our sin nature that still dwells within all of us, even after we're saved and even after God's delivered us out of Egypt. And he's taken us, you know, through the Red Sea, and, and maybe we've had an experience with the waters of God's Holy Spirit and and we're experiencing the Christian life, but yet we realize that there are still always these constant attacks, there are these constant assaults of our fleshly sinful nature that come against our lives and try and bring us into captivity and overtake us. And here they are now attacked by Amalek. And it says that Moses said to Joshua, there's the first mention of Joshua. Remember, he ultimately will take over for Moses and become his assistant. But here, the first mention of him, Moses turns to Joshua and he says to him, choose us some men. Notice, not all of them, it seems, had the aptitude to go out and do battle, but choose some who have an aptitude to fight and to do military conflict. Choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. And tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek So uh, we see what begins to happen here. Moses turns to Joshua and he says, Joshua, listen, we're being attacked. Our enemies are coming against us and and it's not going to solve anything to just bury our head in the sand and act like this isn't happening. We need to face our enemy head on. We need to be willing to fight the good fight and confront our enemy so that our enemy doesn't overcome us. And, and you know what? There's, there's a part of that that's a very important spiritual parallel for how do we handle when our flesh begins to attack and to insult us and, and to try and come against us to, in a sense, control us and rule over our lives. Well, you know what? You have to face your flesh head on. You can't ignore the fact that you have a sinful nature. You can't bury your head in the sand and act like you're more spiritual than you really are. You need to recognize, like Paul said, you know, wretched man that I am and and Paul said i know that in me that is in my flesh nothing good dwells and one of the real keys to overcoming our flesh and our sin nature is quite honestly just facing it head on and being honest about it being real about what you're struggling with being sincere about admitting hey this is an area my flesh that really seems to constantly be attacking and assaulting me and trying to draw me in and cause me to sin against God and to regress back into old ways and you have to be willing here to face your enemy head on in a sense spiritually even as they were in that day as well as he says Joshua take some men you go down and fight on the battlefield and then it says verse 10 that Moses together with Aaron who ultimately will become the high priest and her were introduced to him as well, another leader, it seems, by the side of Moses. They go up onto a mountainous area, probably overlooking the battlefield. And it says, verse 11, that whenever Moses held up his hands holding the rod of God, and the idea there is, is a picture of dependency upon God. That rod of God was a reminder of God's presence, uh, of, of God's work in Moses' life and through Moses' life, so as he's holding up the rod of God, the idea is holding it up in dependency and expectancy, looking to God by his power and his strength to do what Moses can't do on his own, but what God alone can do as he depends upon him to work. And it says, when Moses held up his hands, then God's people would prevail, and when he let down his hands, then Amalek would begin to prevail. So it seems there was this process, you know, and eventually tells us his arms get tired, that as Moses' hands are up, that that God's people are prevailing. And then when his arms begin to droop down, the picture is, is that all of a sudden, then the enemy begins to take more territory and they begin to prevail. And of course, as we look at this, it becomes a beautiful picture once again of prayer Again, the Bible tells us in multiple places in the Psalms, it speaks to us about praying and lifting up hands to the Lord. It tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, God says, I desire that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And so many times the Bible speaks to us about lifting our hands to the Lord, and it's usually in connection to worship and to prayer. You know, and this idea of lifting up our hands again—you know, as as you picture, you know, someone with their hands lifted up—the idea is—is is God, I'm empty-handed. I, look, I got nothing, God. I've got nothing to offer, nothing to bring to the table. There's nothing I can do. Or you know, if we picture our hands in this way, you know, it's a picture of surrender. It's a picture of surrender in the sense of that if someone were to come marching into this room tonight and point a rifle at me, I probably would go like this, which makes me go, I surrender, I sur- whatever you wish, <laughs> I'm not in charge, I surrender. And I think as well, when our hands are lifted up, it's also a picture of, in a sense, dependency and expectancy, saying, Lord, I- I'm ready to receive. I, I'm ready to receive whatever it is that you alone will bestow because I have nothing. I'm empty handed, but I'm, but I'm waiting, Lord. Here's my hand. My hand is outstretched in expectancy, believing, expecting that God can put into my life by his power, his provision, his help, what I lack and what I need in the given situation. And here, as we look at this as a picture of prayer, isn't it interesting to take note that what was happening down on the battlefield with their enemies confronting them was being determined by what was happening up on that mountain. By what was happening up on that mountain, whether Moses' hands were lifted up or his hands were drooping down, that was directly affecting the success or the failure, the victory or the defeat down on the battlefield. And is that not so true As we need to remember that in relation to prayer spiritually, whether it's in our lives personally, whether it's among God's people corporately among the church, that so many times what determines what happens on the battlefield is what's happening as God's people are lifting their hands in prayer to the Lord, seeking him. And you know what? One of the greatest ways to overcome our flesh is through prayer is through prayer, through seeking God dependently, realizing that we can't overcome our sin on our own, but that we need the power and the help of God's Holy Spirit. And one of the greatest ways to overcome your sin nature, listen, it's not necessarily through making resolutions and self-resolve, and I'm going to count the ten, you know, where I'm going to, you know, this five-step program, or listen, do do you want to know what you need to overcome your flesh, the power of God's Holy Spirit? You need the resurrection power of Jesus Christ at work in your life as you yield to him. Romans chapter 6 and 7 and 8 teach this emphatically, emphatically, that we can walk in newness of life, that sin does not have to have dominion over us. Our flesh does not have to govern and dictate and rule our lives if we simply yield to the power of God that's available to us. And in direct relation to oftentimes our prayer life and dependency upon the Lord, we find that either we are prevailing in the spirit or our flesh is prevailing and causing us to lose ground. And here we see this pictured very beautifully with Amalek and Israel. Verse 12 says, but Moses' hands became heavy. The idea is that he became weary. He became tired. You know, he's an older man at this point. Aaron's not much younger than her. I mean, you got a bunch of old guys up here. They're, you know, they're realizing what's well, happening. Well, help me out here, you know, and, then, and he's struggling, keeping his arms up in natural weariness. Again, in his in his flesh. But again, what does Jesus say in relation to prayer? Too, he says, you know, men ought always to pray and not faint or lose heart. And sometimes we can get weary in prayer. Sometimes you know, prayer can be wearisome. There's a labor in prayer that's involved. And we need to be willing to labor in prayer, to tarry in prayer, to be willing to you know, continue on and, and do what we can to stay in an attitude of prayer and intercession. So Moses' hands begin to droop down. So it says they took a stone. Again, look, whatever it takes. You know, I find it interesting. Moses, listen, you're getting tired. Don't sit on a pillow. How about a nice hard stone? Yeah, that ought to keep you alert you know we need to keep you praying here so they they put a stone under his posterior there uh, and let him sit on it and Aaron and Hur come alongside of him and they're supporting his hands one on one side and the other on the other side and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun verse 13 so Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. So again, just this, this beautiful picture, doing whatever is practically necessary to keep themselves in a place of dependency and seeking God because they realized that's what was going to determine the success or the failure down on the battlefield. And, you know, I think there is a time where sometimes the spiritual thing uh, works in direct conjunction with the practical thing you know listen you know if you lay in bed at night and try and lay in bed at night more often than not you're gonna rest in the lord if you know what i mean and you know what that's like our, our, our spirit is willing but our flesh is weak and you know i I find that at times i have to be just conscious and practical of the reality that, you know what, sometimes the position of my body or whatever I need to do practically, get up, move around, go for a walk, those things at times are directly complementary to me being able to tarry in prayer or to stay awake when I'm reading God's word. You know, isn't it so true? You, you can get into, your, get into your bed at, at uh, you know, 10.30 at night or whatever and start to read the Bible and in four phrases you're out, cold, drooling, sleeping, sound asleep, Correct? Now, you can get into your bed at ten thirty at night, and if you have a TV in your room, I don't, but if you do, theoretically, and you put on, I don't know, what comes on ten thirty at night, whatever, you know, one of these late night shows or something. There's an amazing cow, you know, you're wide awake. And you can watch TV for 45 minutes, completely alert, or you can watch the news and grumble and complain what's happening in the eleven o'clock, and you're completely alert. But when you try and do something spiritual, what happens? It's like you know you get hit with the the dart of lethargy. You know the devil like fires. His, it's almost like he's got sleeping darts, isn't he? And all of a sudden, you know, isn't it is amazing how that works? I, I wonder sometimes. You know, I have these bizarre thoughts. You know he's praying. You know and he, like he hits us with one of those sleeping darts, and all of a sudden, you know we're out cold uh, when we're trying to pray or read the word. So here they just do something very practical and it's just a beautiful picture too of how. Here's Moses, the leader. God was working through his dependency upon God on behalf of the congregation of the people. And this beautiful, beautiful picture here as he and his weariness uh, you know, becomes assisted by Aaron and her coming alongside. And it says they're, they're holding up his hands. I, I like that. It's a beautiful picture. It says they're holding up his arms. It doesn't say they're hanging on his arms. They're holding up his arms. Very, very big difference. They're saying, "Hey, how can we hold up your arms?" Because we realize as we hold up your arms, that has a direct effect upon what God does among the congregation of His people down on the battlefield. Verse thirteen it says, and then Joshua begins to defeat Amalek. And notice again, it's it's too picturesque with the edge of the sword, with the edge of the sword. You know, hey, what are some of the ways to overcome our flesh? Confront your sin head on face it, be direct and, and, and face-to-face, be, pray and depend upon God and through prayer and the power of God and what is well, the, the word of God. One of the greatest death blows to our flesh is, is applying the sword of the spirit, which is, the Bible says, the word of God, Ephesians 6 and Hebrews chapter 4, that God's word is like a two-edged sword able to divide between soul and spirit. And God's word has a powerful effect to cut away the fleshly sinful temptations because when you hear the truth of god's word it brings conviction of sin the bible says psalm 119 how can a young man cleanse his way by taking heed unto thy word and god's word is one of the most powerful things the powerful you know sword of god's spirit to cut away the fleshly tendencies to help us crucify the flesh To cut out of our lives wrong attitudes and and wrong behaviors and habits that are displeasing to God. It's the power of God's word and applying the sword of the spirit. I tell you this in direct proportion. I, I tell you this in direct proportion to your personally getting into the word of God and publicly exposing yourself to the word of God. You will begin to see a diminishing of your flesh having greater control of your life and the Spirit of God ruling over your life and you walking in the Spirit more and more. It's not rocket science. Too often as Christians, we try and make it more complicated than what it really is. Listen, you could cleanse every book off the bookshelves in Christian bookstores as far as I'm concerned and stick Bibles on all the bookshelves and say, read your Bible, pray and watch what God does in your life. And I tell you, it is not rocket science. And here in this very practical sense, we have great insights here, this beautiful picture of how they overcame their enemy and really how we can overcome our flesh, which is such a battle. We all wrestle with it. This is a battle. Notice the whole congregation was engaged in. We're all engaged in it. We're all fighting our flesh and wrestling with our own sin nature. Well, verse 14, the Lord then said to Moses, Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar there. The idea is to celebrate God's faithfulness and how he came to their aid. He built an altar there and called its name the Lord is my banner. There's another one of those names, the compound names of God, Jehovah Nisi. The Lord is our banner. Under his banner we fight And he helps us to overcome for he said, verse 16, because the Lord has sworn that he will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now take notice, God declares war against Amalek. It says here, the Lord has sworn that he will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. You know what? God has one solution for our flesh. And that is, that is to be crucified. To be crucified. Look. We don't try and rehab the flesh. We, we don't try and you know, modify the flesh. We don't try to you know, uh, recycle. And, and listen. God says mortify it. Crucify it. God declares war against our flesh. And he says put it to death. That's what we do with the flesh. He says put it to death. And how wonderful to know that when we seek to put to death our fleshly sinful nature, to know that that's not a battle that we're in alone, that God is in that battle with us and we are directly cooperating with what his intention is. And here God makes that declaration. Well, Chapter 18 begins now a reunion with Moses, it seems, and some of his family. It says, And Jethro, who, remember, was his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for all Israel and for his people, and that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. So Moses' father-in-law hears word of these great testimonies, Again, as the Bedouin people were moving around, this was the wilderness area, really some portions of it where Moses had been tending the flocks of his father-in-law Jethro for some 40 years as he was kind of getting his own wilderness training as God was cultivating and preparing him to be a shepherd for his people. Uh, so word passes around through the caravans moving and uh, Jethro gets word of what was happening with Moses who had departed when he sensed the call of God on his life. And he's hearing these incredible stories of how God had done great things for Moses and for the people of Israel and had brought them out of Israel or excuse me, had brought Israel out of Egypt. So verse 2 says, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back with her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom, for he had said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his son's ...and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped there at the mountain of God. So basically what we have here referred to is in essence sort of a family reunion. It seems chronologically there's been about a one year gap of time. Now we're we're speculating somewhat there. We can't be dogmatic in regards to that. But it seems at some point, and we don't have all the information or, or really any explanation... Other than what we're told here that at some point it says Moses had sent back his wife and his children to go back to be with Jethro, his father-in-law, while he was going through the process of, of delivering God's people out of Egypt and taking them through the Red Sea. At what point that happened, we can only guess and speculate. Uh, people like to talk about well why did it happen was it that issue that happened back in Exodus chapter 4 with the you know the whole circumcision thing where she got upset with Moses because of having to circumcise one of the children that's all speculation it could very well be that just recognizing the safety and the welfare Of his wife and his children, he said, "You know what? Why I'm answering God's call in a sense here. uh, You go back. You know, be safe. Take care of the children. In the same way that a man goes off to battle and you know comes home a year later after his assignment on foreign territory. Uh, The bottom line here is now Jethro, his father-in-law, is bringing back, escorting Moses's wife and his two sons. He hasn't seen them." it may be upwards to a year. So there's this beautiful reunion, as you can imagine what it's like, you know, if somebody's been away for a time period and being joined again with their family. And it says, verse 6, Now he had said to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law. He bowed down and kissed him. And the idea there, again, is just showing great respect and they asked each other about their well-being. So they're catching up. Again, this this kind of beautiful family reunion here. And they went then into the tent, into Moses' tent, where they could just begin to fellowship and, and to catch up and to have some family time together. And Moses, verse 8, told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake and all the hardship as well. That had come upon them on the way. Notice he told them both of the incredible works of God and his power. But he also said, but listen, there were some hardships involved in the process as well. It wasn't all easy. There were trials. There were difficulties. And he's recounting now to his father-in-law the stories. And you can imagine him telling the stories. We've been studying them. But imagine hearing those stories firsthand as he's kind of giving testimony of the powerful works of God to his father-in-law and how the Lord had delivered them, verse 8. And Jethro, it says, rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who's delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of Pharaoh, and delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians Now I know, he says, that Jehovah is greater than all the gods, that is, than all the other idols that exist. For in this very thing in which they behave proudly, he was above them. So there's this beautiful, you know, not only reunion, but now Moses just begins to recount testimony of what God had done in his life. And I I love to see this because what's he doing? He's sharing testimony with his family. You know, Here's Moses. I mean, he is, in a sense, carrying a lot of clout. I mean, he is God's anointed shepherd. He is the one who is called to lead the congregation of Israel. The Bible tells us that God is speaking to him face to face. And yet, the, the incredible humility that when his father-in-law comes, he shows tremendous respect to him. He takes time to interact with him, and, and he takes time to just talk about what God was doing and to share with his family. You know, there's no greater place to share testimony of what God's doing than right with your own family. You know, oftentimes we're wanting to run off and, you know, have some public platform to share about what God's doing. And a lot of times, are we taking the time to tell our own family members? To say, hey, can I tell you can I just tell you what God's doing in my life? Can I tell you what God's done and and share my story? And and here Moses, in the midst of the ten, as they're sharing a meal, he just begins to talk to Jethro, and it seems that Jethro did have somewhat of a belief. In Jehovah God from some of the things we pick up in the accounts. In fact, verse 12 says that as Jethro's rejoicing, it says that his father-in-law Jethro took a burnt offering and other sacrifices and offered them to God. And nobody stopped him and said, hey, you're a pagan. You can't do that. It seems that he does have a, a belief in Jehovah God. And Aaron, it says, also came with all the elders to eat bread with Moses, father-in-law, before God. And so it was on the next day after this time of reunion, Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood before Moses, know this, from morning until evening. Now That's a long day there. (laughs) That is a long, long day there. Now, you would think after all Moses has been involved in. And taking place, and now he's just had some downtime with family that he'd say, you know, maybe this is a good time to kind of take a break and to relax a little bit. But I wonder if there was a little bit of a propensity in Moses, as there is in all of us sometimes, to, you know, almost get a little intoxicated with what God's doing to the point where he pushes beyond even what he should be doing because the very next day, instead of just spending, he just, he's just seen his wife and kids again. His father in law just showed up. I mean, you would think, hey, what I should do is take the kids down to the beach at the Red Sea for a couple days and just hang out and spend some time with my wife and kids, right? That would seem to be the thing you'd want to read there. I mean, you haven't seen your family in a while. But maybe Moses, like some of us sometimes, he gets almost intoxicated with the wonderful works of God and being used by God in such a sense that the next morning they wake up. Hey, where's dad? Where's he at? Oh, he's at the office. He's back at it again, and he's there not only just for part of it, but it says from morning until evening, he's standing before the people. In verse 14, when Moses' father-in-law saw all the people did, excuse me, all that he did for the people, he said, what is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people come and stand before you from morning until evening? And Moses said, again, just a genuine explanation, he said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. He says, this is just kind of what's began to happen. You know, people come to me to seek God's will. They come to me to ask, what is God's you know, guidance in this situation? What should God, you know, what does God want them to do? When they have a difficulty, he says, verse 16, they come to me. And I judge between one and another, and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. Now, I just want you to step back and think about this for a minute. If there is upwards to two million people, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. Now, you take your family. Let's say you have four or five people on a little camping trip. And people get kind of cranky and they get on each other's nerves and there's little fights and spats and disagreements. Can you imagine what it's like when you have that many people living together, just social interactions, and, you know, there's little issues and problems and, hey, you know, you know, he, you know, he, he, you know, his kids, you know, threw a stone at my camel and, you know, them kids are pulling tent pegs out of our tents and making it fall and then laughing with their teenage, and there's all these issues. And they keep bringing it to Moses. And what's Moses doing? From morning to evening, he's becoming nothing other than just a problem chaser and a problem solver. Can you imagine the log- just the logistics, the administrative logistics of managing a large group, a congregation of people? I mean, you know, so many times you know, when something is happening with any group of people, there's a lot of logistics that just end up becoming a part of the process. There is a lot of administrative, organizational things and then just dealing with people and hearing people's concerns and things that arise. And and there's this line now from morning to evening. Can you imagine the line that's and they're just all waiting to talk to Moses? And, you know, they're just like us. Every one of them believed that their issue was just as important or more important than all these other people. So this process is going on day after day day after day, from morning to evening, these long lines. And Jethro sees this and he steps back from a place of outside observation. He says, man, this is not good. This is not good. This is not going to be healthy long term. And he says that Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing that you do is not good. And you know what? Sometimes I think the Lord says to that, what you're doing is not good that's that's not good what you're doing sometimes i think we need to be open to the lord on occasion giving his honest evaluation of maybe the patterns that we're involved in or the you know the processes and kind of way things are going and he says look this isn't good both you and here's why verse 18 Both you and the people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out For this thing is too much for you, you are not able to perform it by yourself. So Jethro says to him, Moses, listen, A, this is not good for you personally. You you, you can't manage possibly doing all that God's called you to do on top of all now the, you know, the other logistical details and things that are going into managing. He said, look, you can't keep doing this. You can't do this as one individual. It's not going to work, he says. It's going to destroy you. And more than that, he says, the people are going to begin to suffer because there's no way that you can address all of their needs. There's no way that you can possibly tend to them adequately in the way that they need to be addressed and helped and you know, uh, taken care of in the different ways in which they were coming to him in regards to. So he says, both you and the people are gonna suffer and wear yourselves out. Verse 19, listen now to my voice, he says, and I will give you counsel. So he says, can, can I offer some input, some guidance, some counsel? And God will be with you. And he tells them to do three things. Verse 19, stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God and you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk, in which the work they must do. Moreover, you shall select from all the people, able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness and place such over them to be rulers of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens and let them judge the people at all times and then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you but every small matter they themselves shall judge and so it will be easier for you for they will bear the burden the idea literally is to help carry the load with you And if you do this thing, notice he says, and God so commands you. In other words, he's saying, look, if if this is what God's telling you to do, if this you pray about it, he says, Moses, think about it. And and he says, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm offering you counsel. And he says, if you do this and it is what God's commanding you, you seek God, then you'll be able to endure And all this people also will get to their place in peace. So Moses, you will have long-term endurance and effectiveness. And at the same time, the people will be adequately addressed and cared for according to their given needs in the different situations. So he basically tells Moses to do three things in verses 19, 20, and 21. First, he says, Moses, listen, it's a priority issue here. He says, Moses, God's calling is on your life. You need to stand before God. The idea is to stand before God in prayer and intercession. Moses, you have to stay in contact with God. You need to continue to be in the presence of God, standing in his presence and receiving direction from him and maintaining that personal experience with God yourself because Moses, you are never going to be able to give out to God's people what you're not receiving from God yourself. And you know what? Listen, this becomes a very wise lesson for us because as we at times get ourselves overloaded with certain things, what tends to happen is we get our priorities out of order. And there is one priority that we can never neglect, and that is this, is that we need to have time alone with God. We have to have time alone with God. And we can't substitute doing work from morning to evening and think somehow that that is enough and we can survive off of spiritual fumes and keep working ourselves to exhaustion and sacrifice. Listen, we have to have time alone with God. And he says, Moses, you need to make sure that you stay in God's presence and in prayer. Verse 20 says also it is your calling to teach the people and show them the way. So you need to receive direction from God. And Moses, your calling is to be a teacher. Your calling is to show the people the way, to teach them how to walk and how to work. Your job is not necessarily to problem solve and and to handle logistics and administration. Your job, Moses, is to be an instructor, to be a guider, to be someone who teaches and helps the people to understand God's ways in the way in which God wants his people to walk. And he says, therefore, verse 21, thirdly, select, he says, able men, to handle these areas in a sense that have become overburdening to you and notice yet there were qualifications select the idea is Moses you're also called not only to pray and to teach but you were also called by God's direction to appoint it says able men so his job was to distinguish who were the right individuals to appoint over different areas to help handle some of those things in a sense by way of delegation. And notice that there were different levels of responsibility. Some, it says, were to have responsibility over thousands, some over hundreds, some over fifties, some over tens. But notice that there were, there were things that were necessary. He says, make sure you select men, he says, who are, first of all, he says, men who fear God. It says there in verse 21 make sure they're men who fear God. The idea is, is that they have a reverence for God and they fear God more than they fear men. Because if you fear men, you'll never be good to provide leadership in something because you will always be compromising and making concessions because you're a people pleaser. And he says, no, you need someone who is a God pleaser. You need someone who reverences and cares most about what pleases God. They have a fear of God and therefore that fear of God would make them have a healthy approach to what they do. He says, secondly, they need to be men of truth. The idea is of integrity. People who stand by the truth, who live by the truth in their own life, and they are governed by, hey, what is righteous and what is true. It speaks of someone who has integrity and who has character. And lastly, he says, someone who hates covetousness. The idea is they're not somebody who's easily bribed. They're not somebody who's in it for personal gain. Or for monetary benefit. Again, just pointing that there were character qualities that needed to exist in the lives of those who were to be put in places of leadership as delegation was given forth. And of course, you know, we look at this and it becomes a pattern of exactly what ultimately begins to happen in the New Testament. In the book of Acts chapter 6, remember it says that as the church was growing and beginning to increase, it says certain widows were being neglected and the apostles came together and said, listen, we understand we need to address this. This is a logistical issue. There are needs that need to be taken care of. But it's not right for us to neglect prayer and the word of God to wait on tables. So what did they do? They said, select from among you seven men, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, men of wisdom and good reputation, and appoint them over this business so that we might devote ourselves to what God has called us to. You know, it's been said before, you cannot both give your head and your heart as well as your back and your hands to the same thing. (laughs) You usually give one or the other. You, know, you can either give your back and your hands to something or you can give your head and your heart to something. But when you try and do both, you just can't sustain that long enough. So God has given to us instruction in the word of God. We see this first example. Here's the first congregation of God. And God shows us this beautiful paradigm. Just like in the church, there are deacons and elders and those who help support and come alongside to bear up responsibility, to help in a sense. Uh, you know, we have this same pattern here where God calls a shepherd leader. God speaks to him. God says, I'll give him direction. His job is to teach and to shepherd the people and, and to recognize others who can handle responsibility when that's necessary. But that person can't be a do-everything person. Because if that begins to happen, not only will they self-destruct, but what also begins to happen is the people begin to suffer because they're not receiving the adequate attention that they need in their lives. And so Moses receives this counsel and it says, verse 24, he heeded the voice of his father-in-law. And did all that he said. And he chose able men over all Israel. And made them heads over the people of thousands and hundreds and fifties. So they judged the people at times. And the hard cases they brought to Moses. But they judged every small case themselves. And Moses let his father-in-law depart. And he went away to his own land. So again we see how it worked. It worked very effectively. They handled in the different spheres the level of responsibility God gave to them. They managed that. They managed it faithfully. And they did that to help take some of the load off of Moses. And it says that then when a bigger issue arose, when they needed a little more guidance, they would then bring those things to Moses. But they didn't bring everything to Moses. Uh, Moses, uh, should we use one-ply or two-ply toilet paper? What What do you think? You see what I'm saying? Just pick. Just, just pick. Should we use pine salt or lice salt? Just pick. You just, they, they handled all. Hey, these two people are having an issue. This couple's having a marital problem. You know, wh- listen, why don't you and your wife pray with them? Invite them over to dinner. Talk to them. Give them, you're married. Give them marriage counseling. And see, so often I think one of the biggest things is is that we have this wrong perception, and and hear what I'm saying, that God can't use us. The Bible says we're all able ministers of the new covenant. We all have the word of God. We all have the Holy Spirit. God wants to use all of us and can use all of us. And our job is simply to make ourselves available. And the wonderful thing is that when that begins to happen, then God begins to use us in effective ways, in the areas where we really need to prioritize our attention. And when you see that happen in the book of Acts, the church became more healthy. And God said, okay, now there's a broader, healthier base. And it says, then God went from addition to multiplication. When they began to implement what God's intention was, it went from addition to multiplication. And then God was able to do more and more things.